Welcome back to Arts About. Show about art that's a work of art in itself. Good morning, Sally. Good morning, John. How are you this morning? Not bad. That's good. And uh, you're listening to Arts About on PFM, and uh, you're here in the Bendigo Bank studio listening to us. Cultural morning, sounding Mark. board. Good morning, John. Good morning, Sally. Now, Sally, have morning. to point out, Hang Mark on. has yes. warned me yes. off yes. mentioning Sorry. any part of his wardrobe, so I'm not going to. That's good. Very good. Yes, because it's a show about art. Yeah. It's a work of art in itself, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> exactly. And as I started to say, you're in the Artable Peace Studios with Cultural Sounding Board and Artist in Residence, John Baird. The thermodynamic, Mark Stewart. Does that word still suit, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> I'd <laughs> and, forgotten about that, but And yes. me, Sally Bailey. Uh, what have you got on for us this week, John? Uh, I'm, I'm talking, so, I was thinking about a, um, a moment in my family home when I was a teenager where we had uh, Fred Williams come round and uh, interestingly ignored a print of his own work on the wall Mm -hmm. um, because it was a cheap reproduction I think. So I'm going to talk about that. So he politely ignored it. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. And went after your mum? No he didn't go after my mother no he was more interested in dinner really. Mm, he was a ra- he did like a you wouldn't want to get between Fred Williams and a chop I wouldn't have thought. No, no, he liked a meal. <laughs> he was a big man, wasn't he? Uh he wasn't tall, but he no, was No, yeah. he was rotund, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. And Mark, what are you going to be talking to us about? Well, I'm going to be talking about uh, attention and um, Japanese pornography. Oh, yeah. oh, erotica or pornography? I knew that would get your attention. Yeah. So here we go. That's fantastic. All right. Well, also on the program today, we're going to be talking with Emma Telfer, who is the director of Open House. I know I've mentioned it over the last couple of weeks. It's on for the month of July in Melbourne and culminates in a weekend of opening um, openings of different buildings, examples of architectural excellence. There are 220 buildings across Melbourne who open their doors to curious members of the public. So I just flipped through the book that accompanies it's that It's a pretty substantial program, isn't it? It is, and uh, just flipping through the book, I found a few buildings that I wasn't aware of or wasn't aware of what they were, had been used for and still had the memory of. Ah, oh, fantastic, yeah. yes. Well, there's also two buildings included in it this year that are a part of the Monash campus, and there are two new buildings down at the Frankston campus, and uh, I think it's the residency accommodation and, uh, oh, goodness, I'm not sure what the other one is. There's two. Anyway, we will, we will be talking about them mm. a little bit later on. So uh, to get into the theme of buildings and cities and all of that sort of stuff, I'm going to play a little of R.L. Burnside, who is a, an American blues artist um, that probably nobody's ever really heard of. Oh, not nobody's ever really heard of. He's not regularly played. I think he's fantastic. Uh, have a listen to this. At the end of this month, Open House Melbourne opens the doors of more than 200 homes, buildings and gardens in Melbourne that might have piqued your interest but are usually closed to the public. The independent organisation nurtures public appreciation of architecture and advocates for better designed cities by encouraging civic participation. Its annual program of talks, tours, workshops and interviews delve into the challenges and successes of Melbourne's built environment. Beginning 11 years ago, the organisation includes a July intensive that opens 220 doors into Melbourne's hidden interiors. 
Founded by Open House London 25 years ago, its extended family is now in 40 cities around the world and it's thanks to Open House Melbourne that since 2008 nearly 230,000 people have had the chance to explore the inner sanctums of the city, contributing more than $20 million to the Melbourne economy and providing unequaled insights into our architectural development. Executive Director Emma Telfer is with us this morning to entice you further. Good morning, Emma. Welcome to Arts About. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Emma, um, all of us can appreciate a beautiful building and, and maybe articulate why we might like it, but um, why it works in the environment and its relationship to its circumstances and its purpose is much more confl- complex. What can we learn by discussing these things? Well, that's, a ve- that's a great question, and, and, and thank you for such a wonderful intro to Open House. I think you would, you, you've done it better than I was <laughs> talking about um, what we do and, and and why we do it. Um, you know, we really exist to encourage people to to learn about the, the values of good design and architecture, specifically in the built environment. And so it's sort of about unpacking what seems to be uh, or can be very much uh, left to the experts. And we absolutely advocate on behalf of the architecture and urban design profession. But we also think that it's important for everyday people to understand why design matters um, and how good design decisions in our built environment can really positively impact the livability of our cities now and in the future. Um, and so, and we do that by opening up, really at the heart of what we do is opening up buildings for people to go through. So providing really tangible experiences of what good design looks like. And, and we also introduce you to, to design professionals and experts who will take you on a tour and impart their knowledge so you can be kind of better informed and think about what makes for a great um, interior space or a great building or a great landscape um, and how it actually impacts you and the broader community. Mm. I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it, really, that um, such a huge proportion of budgets, you know, whether they're civic budgets, whether they're uh, domestic architectural ones or or um, commercial ones, such a huge part of anybody's budget is uh, architecture. And, and yet, really, that forum is very rarely discussed. But there must be masses of lessons that we've learned. I mean, there must be thousands of bad buildings and bad spaces out there. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I think we've all watched Grand Designs, haven't we? Where <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you see the good, you know, the good outcomes and also the challenging outcomes. Um, what's interesting about domestic architecture, uh, you know, people using an architect on their home new build or renovation, is that the number is actually quite low. It's only about, it's, it's between 3 to 5% um, of new homes are architect designed, which mm. is an extraordinary figure when you think about it. Um, and if you go back uh, into the 1960s when the Aid to Small Home Service existed and there were other um, initiatives uh, that created uh, kind of a higher demand for modest but architect-designed homes, at that point, there were, I think the, the statistic is 20% of new homes were being designed by architects. So we've really lost some ground, mm-hmm. and I do think that you can see that in the city um, as the city is changing its rapidly evolving to keep up with um, all these people coming into Melbourne. Um, and we're starting to see some pretty mediocre development happening around around the place. And so what we're trying to do is encourage people to think about how can we improve upon these developments? Mm. Because we need development. We need, we need a city to evolve and change. And 
so how do we um, how can we all come together to advocate for better design outcomes? Yes, I mean, part of that, I'm sure, is is part of is this sort of democratization of uh, of things like the, um, design, design programs, the computerization, the simplification of of uh, of technology to enable anybody to do it. But it, I guess what happens is it all just ends up not relating to each other at all. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. Um, it, you know, it's great the democratization of design in a sense, in in terms of more people are thinking and talking about it. So especially sort of over the last five to seven years, um, there's more uh, interest in the media around um, design in the city. There's more interest in terms of residential design with the likes of Grand Designs um, and a number of other uh, television shows. Um, there's a rise of organisations like Open House and there's others that are doing really great work in terms of public advocacy. So... It feels like the, the it's, it, design is higher on the agenda, but at the same time, we then also have to kind of protect it um, from the fact that people are kind of using the term architecture or, or design in, in, in quite a loose way. Mm. One of the themes this year, I think, is The Australian Ugliness, which is a book written by Robin Boyd. Um, what, what did this book suggest to us quite a long time ago? <laughs> Oh, it's, um, so Robin Boyd wrote The Australian Ugliness back in the early 1960s and it was really a, a, an architecture and also a social or a cultural critique of Australian culture um, and our obsession with building houses which are heavy in featurism but also ill-suited to the climate of Australia. Um, and so he was really advocating for us to think about um, a new type of housing typology for Australia, which would be better suited to the climate, would be better to live in, would provide better access to light and nature um, and uh, also probably to the broader community. Um, and he was also kind of critiquing the, uh, Australian cities and how we were sprawling and spreading out rather than thinking about a smarter kind of urban planning system. Um, and so we, we've got a new project this year called The Australian Ugliness and it's riffing off that book and, and it's, it's been developed by this amazing artist Eugenia Lim um, and it's, it's really a, a new three-channel video work where she's looking at uh, cultural identity throughout iconic architecture. Um, but it, So it's taking Robin's ideas and kind of stretching them to also think about gender and race. Um, and a number of other kind of cultural markers. Um, that exhibition opens on the 23rd of July down at the School of Design at the University of Melbourne, and it runs for a month, and I highly encourage you to, to get, get down there and, and see it. It's a wonderful piece of work. That idea that, um, that, that really must happen so frequently that, that buildings do not take into account our climate and our um, uh, you know which direction the sun faces in, and thermal management, and and all of those things is just a, an extraordinary thing. There's the, the wasted money that's uh, that is caused by the lack of consideration of those issues. I know that the, that two that you've got two buildings. In fact, you've got a huge amount of buildings that are part of the Monash campus that are included in this year's um, program. But two of them are actually down here at Frankston, and they're part of the Monash campus here. Um, there's a, a 
accommodation site and recreational centre, and also uh, what's the other one? The the um, the accommodation the, um, site, the Monash accommodation um, site. That, that both are addressing those those issues of, of sustainable um, uh, energy consumption, and um, uh, and one of them's got a five star green rating. I understand. It does. Um, it, it's. Uh, I think it was the first uh, five star green star rated building um, in the Monash uh, um, portfolio, mm-hmm. but um, also I think one of the first ever in Australia. Um, and that's by Hamer Architecture, and it was completed back in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one, the, Mon- the Monash uh, Peninsula Accommodation site, which is by Jackson Clements Burrows, which is a relatively new project, is um, cross-laminated timber construction and uh, pass- and it's targeting passive house certification. And I believe it's the largest project in Australia to combine both of those those targets. So it's quite an ambitious project. Mm. Um, and I highly recommend doing both of those buildings. Um, they are pre-booked. Um, most of our buildings on our, on our program are open access, but we do have a number which are pre-booked and those two are pre-booked because they have limited capacity. Well, that would um, be quite interesting to our listeners down here, some of them who, who may not be able to get up to the city there is part of this program, is quite local. Um, and, and that's a very interesting point because, you know, as John uh, mentioned earlier in the program, the, the, the program is vast. There are 220 buildings and it's open for a weekend. It's not possible, would not be possible to go and see them all. So it's really worth going onto the website to have a look and, and pick out the eyes that really interest you. Um, you have some major sponsors. Do you also have some major listeners? Some major sorry, listeners. What? Well, um, you've got some major sponsors that are that are funding the program, which is you know very worthy. And is, but it but it has huge sites. I wonder whether or not you have major listeners, major development developers. Do they participate in this? Uh, is that who you're talking to, probably? Oh well, the, our primary mission is to talk to um, Melbournians and to talk to right. the public in Victoria, uh, but. Uh, through our programming, we are working alongside uh, most of the major architecture practices and a number of large developers um, as well. Uh, we, you know, we're very much about the future of the city as we are about looking back on on the city's important um, heritage sites, and um, and so we work very um, closely, but also we we select the our partners very carefully to ensure that we are. Um, highlighting projects which are uh, doing good things for the city, pushing a sustainability agenda or pushing a very clear social agenda um, and or and are contributing to the city's um, excellence in design. Um, so we do work with a number of developers, both residential and more kind of commercially focused developers um, and very much the profession of architecture as well and urban planning. Mm. It's it's exciting and it's huge, uh, and I think an awful lot of it is free, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's not the best business model, but we <laughs> we we are very much about being as accessible as possible to our audience, and so the, the two hundred and twenty buildings open on the weekend uh, are free. Any of the pre-booked buildings, we just put a five-dollar booking fee to ensure that people turn up on the day, try and make it as fair as possible. Um, it's always huge demand with the pre-booked buildings, and um, so we find that the five-dollar fee just helps with people's commitment. Um, 
And then we have a whole program of events happening in July. Um, we, we're calling it now a month-long festival of architecture. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally all of those are free, a cu- a cu- apart from a couple of special events and some of the film screenings down at Acme. Yes, it's, it, it's absolutely vast. You must have an army of people um, no. operating it. <laughs> no, I'm looking at my team at the moment. We've got a really small but very powerful uh, team, but we are supported by an immense amount of volunteers. We couldn't do it without a volunteer uh, workforce. We have about 800 out and about on the weekend. Um, so if you do head out for the weekend, do, do smile and thank them because they're contributing their time to make this all possible. Um, and then we have a number of other kind of key volunteers that help us throughout the year. Amazing. Well, Open House is on now and you can find out more by visiting their website to see the myriad of talks, walks and encounters that you can have with our city's architecture. Go to openhousemelbourne.org and have a look. The weekend of the 28th and 29th are the ones you can go and explore the buildings and given that there are so many open, you need to make a list of the ones that interest you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today on Arts About Emma Telfer. Have a great July. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye. Okay, so did you like, were you interested in that? Um, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, it's interesting that when they talk about uh, opening buildings um, so people can have a look at the design qualities, uh, they're getting a bit away from what I tend to look at in architecture, which is the skin of the building. You know, I like the outsides of buildings, yep. I was thinking, you know, like the Stanhill building and the Newburn building in um, South Melbourne. Um but they're going inside. Yeah, which... yes. And I think what they're, you know, they're very clearly they're interested in design and how buildings work and whether right. they, whether they actually perform the functions with which they are, you know, designed in the first place. Uh, yeah, the, it's, there's a lot of questions there because the, the, um, the basis is how much money you're going to spend. <clears throat> Sorry, I dropped your volume right. down a little bit. Uh, how much money you're going to spend on a building and how long it's going to last. And this is, I think, a lot of the buildings, a lot of the, uh, the houses built in Melbourne are made to last maybe 50 years at the most. Yes. Well, and I so think the supposition is is that, that, that cities change and their, very, their purposes change. Well, very very much so. I mean, Australia, Melbourne and Sydney are perfect examples of the fact mm. that the, the urbanisation is becoming more um, built up. The domestic and stock in both Melbourne and Sydney is pretty appalling. Well, it's, look, yeah, I mean, we all know, we've all lived in different houses and we know which ones work and which don't, but they're, we can make them comfortable. And I think that's most people, they, you know, they just turn on the electricity. It, it's, it's not about living within nature. And as Robin Boyd has precise, you know, presently said in the sixties, it is about having a house which is part of the nature and part right. and, and passive. That sort of thinking is we're getting to it now. Whereas, you know, the big problem for most people is they just want a house where they can turn on their televisions and, and their and, air conditioner and their air conditioners and that's it. But you, I mean, that's, People are pretty busy, so not really be able to think about. It's a luxury to be able to think about nature. And, well, and it, it is, also. but I think it's a short-term luxury, you know, because well, I think really in the long term it, it isn't. Well, I don't know whether because it I has mean, huge social impacts. It, it does, but then when you see that living. all of the the wealthy people are moving into apartments in the inner city because they like the the fact that they you know it's it's you've got a concierge, you, can, you don't have to worry about gardens or you know, mm-hmm. parking or that. So it's a it, it is a more intense sort of inner life in a way. Whereas the people in the suburbs are so busy with their kids and going to work that they just don't have a chance to think about these things. Do you know, Mark, that in um, contemporary housing design, there is a room um, that's appeared out of the blue, which uh, previously didn't exist in houses, 
Uh, it's called a home cinema. It's in the middle of the house and has no windows because um, it doesn't concern itself with the outside world at all. Yeah, no, they're often in the, ca- in the cellars. In the, I mean, in the big houses, they're in cellars. But yeah, I, I mean, it's like the gym as well. It's a- taking up a lot of space in these some of these houses. It seems unnecessary somehow, but I guess... Um... Anyway, this project, which mm-hmm. is going to look inside buildings, yes. and uh, would seem to me to be fascinating, one of the things that I learnt out of flipping through that book yeah. is that a building over the road from the cellar bar in Burke Street, the old Salvation... Florentino's, yeah. yeah. And the Salvation Army building over the road, uh, which I've looked at a lot yes. and love the facade of it, but in the ceiling of it, in the roof of it is a uh, a circa 1900 uh, cinema studio really intact really yeah uh, which they're opening as a museum apparently working well it's just been left there they haven't they haven't thought about that part of the building at all so it's still intact it's mm. still there they don't go up there at all how, re- how remarkable yes yeah. well i used to work in when i was very young i worked in a building that was Annabelle's, do you remember that? I think it was the old Navy and military yes, I do, uh, yeah. building yeah. in Alfred Place yep. that's become various restaurants in sequence yeah. for a long time afterwards. And when I worked there upstairs, there were two squash courts. And yeah. we used, as, used to I sneak up there. Yeah, we used to sneak up there after mm. our shifts and go and have a look in this building. And uh, mm. I uh, loved that building. Yeah. Yes, beautiful building. And all sorts of, as you're right, all sorts of restaurateurs and hoteliers have mm. had a crack at it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I don't know what's in there now. Vieta was in there for a yeah, while. Yes, she was. Hey, um, I'm going to play a little bit of uh, uh, Nielsen for you, jump into the fire right now, while, and then we're going to listen to some sponsors. And um, here we go. Yes, indeed it is. So it is. Haven't quite finished with buildings, Sally. Oh, very good. Okay. Yep. So as an aside, really. But um, I... As I was saying about the skin of buildings, the outside of buildings, mm. uh, and this program that we were talking about earlier is essentially about um, what goes on inside buildings and what the design qualities are. I mean, it's also about the outside yeah. of the building as well, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but my interest is in the outside, and some of the buildings I'm wondering that I'm interested in whether or not they have anything interesting going on inside, like the ICI building, mm-hmm. which I love, a great big block of ice up on the top of the city there. Yes. Um, I'm pretty sure it's just full of offices. I don't think there's much going on in there in a design sense. The staircases would be good, no doubt. Well, I'm not sure that that's true because there's, there will be a whole culture of uh, industry that goes on inside those buildings and where how that building uh, um, approaches and uh, affects those that culture is probably extremely important maybe maybe it's a really great example maybe all the people that work in there even if they're doing what we might consider to be dull things are actually doing them well and enjoying being in the space because and, of the loveliness of the building well it's not not so much loveliness but but the accessibility for functions that occur in there whether okay. or not you know you, you you know whether it's easy to work in there right. or difficult to work in there whether it's pleasurable whether it encourages people to be in there and stay in there whether it, whether it's you know the things that ICI require of their staff and of their um yep. you know what i mean it's, i, I don't I think reckon it's it would have been easy to nice work in looking. the gas and fuel building with a great view of the gardens well, you, so. yes well we all know you love that <laughs> gas and fuel building don't we <laughs> 
I can't remember, One Mark, side. are you on that side or not? Did you like the gas and fuel buildings I that didn't completely until I, blocked out the view? Of well, until they, yeah, until I was have, had the studio up in the last floor of the Bourne Welsh building, and all I could see was the gas and fuel building. That's why yeah. he doesn't like it, because but it that's pre- the only reason prevented a view of trees from yeah. his studio. Yeah, that's right. And um, <laughs> what about the, the look of it? Did you like it? Oh, look, it was very much um, sort of brutalist, Bauhaus. It was you know, yeah. very International efficient, I guess. style. Yeah, international style. It mm. was, and, and those heaters on the ground floor were really were a great pleasure when, during the cold. Right. Um, but it had to go. There's no question. I, I don't think Fred Square will last much longer either. I think it will go eventually. This is the thing. How long do buildings last? Yeah. Well, I don't think Fred Square will go. I think it will be corrupted. The purity of the architecture will be corrupted by additions, like an Apple store, for instance. Yes, or. actually, that was one of the questions I did want to ask Emma Telfer because Open House uh, coordinated the, the public discussion that they had, or debate that they had about that um, Apple store in that square, and I, I actually don't know what became of that discussion. What, what, what's happened? Is it They're still They're building going? it. They are, are they? Yeah. Oh. yeah, of course they will. I mean, it's people will love it. They'll, they'll love it. It'll come and I go. I might very well love it myself. Yeah, exactly. Know, but it is a corruption nonetheless. Yes, indeed. It's all a corruption, isn't it? I mean, you, what, it's like Genghis Khan when he came to the, the gates of uh, Peking or Beijing. Uh, in 1279, uh, I think it was, and they said, his general said to him, so what should we do with it? He said, raise it. It's a waste mm. of pasture land. And then Kublai Khan, his grandson, rebuilt it, you know, 150 years later. You know, you want to go back to, imagine that billabong, that beautiful blue clear billabong that was under, um, the Southern Cross Station. You want to go back There's there? There's lots of Genghis Khans down in Sorrento. Yeah. Um, speak, speaking of, of, of uh, an argument like that, I do remember laughing hysterically years ago when playing... Remember that game Trivial Pursuit? Mm. One of the questions in Trivial Pursuit was, what has been described as the greatest waste of sheep country in the world? And the answer was Canberra. <laughs> It is beautiful sheep country, isn't it? It is indeed. <laughs> yeah. But look, it's, you know, I remember the 70s when, you were in, when there was all that hoo-ha about all the beautiful buildings being knocked down. And there were some magnificent buildings being knocked down. You yeah. know, at the top end of, of, of Collins Street was, was, was and they, magnificent. They were, frankly, they weren't all Victor, uh, Victorian buildings no. that we lost. You know, mm. Some of the buildings we lost were a lot more recent than that. Yes. And my one of the things I hated seeing going was uh, where 101 Collins Street is now mm. was the M, uh, Amcal building, Amaco. Yes. The aluminium company. Yep. And there was an aluminium building there with big kind of aluminium wings out the front of the windows mm. that could be adjusted up and mm. down for the sunlight. And it was the most extraordinary looking thing. Where was Beautiful that? Beautiful building. Where 101 Collins Street is. So oh. I think it's a corner of Collins and Exhibition, is it's it? It's next door to the Hyatt Hotel. Right. So, yeah, it's ex- yeah, it's Exhibition. There were some beautiful buildings. Anyway, look, you have to make way for new architecture. This is the big problem in places like Paris where you, know, you can't touch any of the inner city buildings and it does create a certain, um, you know, everything's the same in many ways, although there are differences within. Well, one has but, to make way for architecture, but also defend it. Well, this is know. why they've built a place called La Défense, which is out in the suburbs, and right. it's just new buildings, and yeah. some extraordinary architecture, where that cube is, I don't know if you've ever seen it, the interior yeah, the, cube. Yeah, the Arc de Triomphe, straight through to the it's big true, arch. Exactly. And, and a, the distance. Exactly, yeah. and apparently it's lined up with the Cathedral of uh, Milan as well, yeah. so there's a sight line all the way mm. through, which you can't see, obviously. Well, I mean, I, I think maybe in a way that's why forums like this are really great because they're giving 
the public uh, an opportunity to respond to and and compare design because it does affect everybody, doesn't it? Well, it's going to it, certainly in the future because we're just going. To, it's, everything's going to be so much more computerized, and mm. and your know, technology is going to play a huge part in the future of buildings and the way we interact. It's going to be you know, extraordinary. If you see some of these new full floor buildings that they're building in St Kilda and South Melbourne, where people have their cars parked on their floor. You know, they're doing stuff like mm. this, which oh, seems I was doing that years ago. You yeah. were too. <laughs> John's told the story. Great story. Of, left of years. The, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the vehicle. You need some photos. Huh? Yeah. yeah, that would be good. Mm. Now, you were going to talk to us about oh, Fred Williams, uh, who um, very, very interesting painter. Mm-hmm. A lot of people see Fred Williams as uh, a landscape artist, Australian landscape artist, mm-hmm. which indeed he was. Yes. Um, but his approach to the landscape uh, is what interests me. In that he. Um, he sort of looked at the landscape and then tilted it upwards towards himself and flattened it out completely on the picture plane. And um, the, what that does is just introduces a, a very European style of painting to the Australian landscape. And uh, it fascinated me the way that he was able to do that. How and do you I, mean he tilted it up? I'm, I'm not sure. Well, if you, look at a, uh, if you look at a paddock with some trees yep. and some hills in the distance... There's a, a, a feeling of perspective, yes. a feeling of distance. If you tilt that up to a picture plane, then it all flattens out in yep. front of you. Yep. Horizon line. Well, the horizon line can be there, but there's no sense of distance. Mm. Yes, it's yes, flat. it's flat. Yeah. So it just it becomes paint rather than a landscape, essentially. Mm. And uh, so he pushed that view much more towards paint and paintyliness and uh, less towards a uh, a, a landscape, mm. look, looking at a paddock with some trees in it. Uh, and he was an interesting guy too. He's a friend of my parents, and uh, he used to come to the house occasionally. We had a um, very large uh, reproduction of a painting of his called The Saplings, which came out through a... Newspaper, the Herald, I think, produced a series of prints of oh, Australian newspapers artists. Do, they still do this, yeah. that sort of thing occasionally, don't they? Hmm. These were kind of um, colour separation prints on thin, shiny paper. They weren't that good. Um, but one would get these in the mail and glue them onto a board and um, stick a frame around them and whack them on the wall. And that print of the saplings was probably in half the houses in our street. Right. Uh, it was a very popular thing. A bit like Tim Storrow's prints at uh, the moment, huh? Yeah, I'm not sure that they're as popular because they're a bit more expensive. These weren't expensive. They were cheap. Mm. And uh, there was one way, one thinking was that um, it had enabled people who couldn't otherwise afford to have a it's always been the case painting on their wall to um, to afford a, a set of them. And the set, I seem to remember, was a William Dobell, a Fred Williams, um, a couple of Arthur Boyds. You know, there was a choice of Arthur Boyds, you know, because he was prolific. And uh, some other stuff that I don't remember. But the Williams print was in our living room. And I remember Williams coming to the house... And no matter how cunningly one might try and lead him to the print to talk about it, he just completely ignored it. It was like he would not acknowledge that it had anything to do with him or that he'd had anything to do with it. Funny. Mm. Yeah. 
And uh, I wondered about that, and uh, I wanted to talk to Jonathan Cecil about it, actually, because he has some attitudes about this. Well, well, John, just look at your own attitude. You completely ignore your paintings when you walk into someone's room. You've got them there, don't you? You don't want to have anything to do with them. I'm happy to talk about them if they want to talk about them. Mm. Well, I guess it was because they bought them, whereas the prints they didn't. No, I don't don't ignore them. I might not sort of go over and stand next to them with my arm around them and... uh, (laughs) And, and say that I did this, but I I don't ignore, I don't think I ignore them. Do you think he was being incredibly polite and he didn't want to? I think uh, he was just waiting for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Okay. Didn't want to have some long conversation about a reproduction interfering with his chopping. Fair in enough. Time, you know. How funny. Mm. He's a lovely man. Was he? Was he married? Have children? Do you have oh, lovers? Yeah. What, yeah, what, yeah, what yeah, daughters. I don't know anything about him. He had, he had uh, anything bad about married him. with daughters. He uh, he was a painter. He was essentially just another painter. No drug addicts, no um, drugs, no alcohol. He got involved in the Rudy Coman set of um, artists who were all managed by the same art dealer, Rudy Coman. And uh, he had a meteoric rise in uh, notoriety and value mm. and uh, achieved a lot of money for his paintings and died young. 52, yeah, yeah, I think. Okay. Right. I, I, he's never been a favourite of mine, unfortunately. Well, you, made, you need to have another look. Yeah, maybe I won't. Okay, now, what so, are you going to talk to us about? Well, remind I, me. I, I'm not sure if I'll talk about Japanese porn because it might, might be a bit too much for, uh, for you in the morning like this. I think I might talk about smell instead. Oh, okay. The olfactory senses. Yes. Oh, yes, yeah. okay. So the sense of smell evolved before our other senses. Right. So it is unique That's in, pointless. Well, no, it was very much so. You look at animals. <laughs> I don't think so. Is that, is that the stimuli goes straight to the limbic system, right. which means the emotional center of the brain. Right. It's the only one of the senses that does that. So it's very nostalgic smell. It's very something very emotional about Sentimental it. Sentimental. Sentimental. Mm. So is exactly. this in the womb? This is in the cortex of your brain. Yes, mm-hmm. I know, but your sense of smell develops in the womb or... No, it develops in your in your brain. Your ability to smell must have developed in the womb because your your sense of hearing absolutely is already uh, there. So if it is the first one to develop, it must be functional in the womb. It's the first one to evolve. I'm talking about evolve. Oh, evolve out of once. There we go. It was very important to us in the beginning. Right. Don't ask me why. I'm not going to answering that. So this is why <clears throat> the sense of smell is triggered by airborne molecules, as yes. you probably know, the nasal cavity, and via the nostrils and mouth. The receptors send information to a structure at the base of the front brain called the olfactory bulb. It forms part of the limbic system and, when stimulated, it sends signals to the adjacent structures, including the amygdala. Signals are sent subsequently to the orbital frontal cortex, the brain area behind the eyebrows. So you're smelling behind your eyebrows. Right. John? There's a lot going on when one... Oh, I can smell that microphone. Don't get too close. No. There's a lot going on even more for the sense of touch. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Because the sensation of being touched is generated by electrical activity in a variety of sensory neurons embedded in the skin. Yeah. So we've got different layers of our skin. We have different sensors getting different touches. Okay. They include nociceptors, which are for pain, right. pruriceptors, which convey itch, 
thermoreceptors, which register temperature information, and low threshold mechanoreceptors, which react to vibrations or pressures on the skin. So do the temperature receptors uh, work in, uh, thermoreceptors. in concert with the pain receptors? They all work together. Right. You're all getting it at the same time. But there's that half-second lapse, which is from your receptors to your brain and then Not back sense. again. And it's, this is the dangerous spot. Um, I don't think there's a half second lapse at all. Well, there is. If I stick my finger in a fire, I feel it straight away. It goes pretty quickly. Each of the areas receives information from a specific part of the body. If the signal is strong enough, it is passed through frontal areas of the brain that make the stimulus conscious. Okay, so it's all getting into, this is about the consciousness. Mm -hmm. Effective touch, the sort that comes from stroking or cuddling another person or pet, activates the anterior cingulate cortex, which in turn excites parts of the limbic system and creates an emotional response. Right. We are such complex creatures, aren't we? we? Not with me. Do you know what what always really bothers me? The very first thing that you said, which was about the sense of smell, is that it's about molecules that are entering our... So, which always really horrifies me when I think, what about all those disgusting smells yeah, that you smell, you, like poo you, and things like that? You have Does poo molecules you, you in your nose. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so can you be poisoned by smelling well, something? Well, how, how far can the sense of smell go? That's the other thing. How, how far does it travel? And it's, I think they mm. all get sort of filtered out in your nose. I'm not sure you have to... Which is a good reason not to pick your nose and eat it, I would have thought. (laughs) The shape of the molecules locking onto the nasal receptors determines the eventual smell detected. But molecules of quite different shapes can produce the same conscious smell. One theory holds that the frequency at which the atoms of smell molecules vibrate is rather more crucial than their shape. So it just depends on how it's vibrating. It's like gas. You know, gas doesn't smell. They put the smell into it so that we know that it's smelling. So what is it, one wonders, that smell actually is? Well, this is the thing. It it is a vibrating molecule. Right. And and it's you. But then we have to respond to it, and how we respond to it is you. It's a very. It's a, a fascinating. Thing. So why would some things vibrate in a smelly way and others in a rather pleasant I guess way? it's to do with their, whether they're rotting or not or how, you know, how they're dying. But it, is it a warning? You know, yes, is it, it, it most certainly well, it's will like, be. Yes, mm. It will be an evolutionary response that we have had to different smells that will have made us more sensitive to smells that are dangerous to us or, 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 or good look, for us. Or look in the other sense, or yeah. like sugar, how you know, how much sugar you can take. Apparently in a can of Coke there's 16 teaspoonfuls of sugar. Can you smell sugar? Well, you can. It's very obviously very sweet and it's sickly in a way. And So how far do you go between bitter and sweet and how much can you take and how much you know, it makes you actually sick to your heart? Like yeah. too much sugar, too much for example. Sugar. Yeah. Which is um, they're going to put which a Which is not very much. It's no, well, they're going, apparently with all the soft drinks, they're going to put um, um, cubes of sugar to show people, because there's something like 22 different types of sugar, of course, show them how much they're actually taking when they get a right. bottle of Red Bull or can. You know, terrible for these no kids. No soft drinks for me. Nor me. No. But that's, you know, should, you none of us should be having it. it. You're, going to, you're not, not into so much sweetness. Get a bit more bitter. I do like a bit of bitter, yeah. With a anyway. twist. Well, I didn't get to the Japanese pornography. No. But, um, no so is that uh, like classic Japanese pornography or? Uh, oh, it's all it, modern, but they I think it's just a whole different concept composed compared to Californian. Pornography. Yeah, well, the Japanese have a kind of they're a bit sort of grown up about it, aren't they? 
I think they might be. I think they've just got a totally different attitude towards to any sort well, of stimulation. Well, can you talk to us about it next week? Well, I can try. I can, I, yes. I can yeah. Because, hark, it's time for the news. Okay. Yeah. Now, coming up at the Merrick's Art Gallery this week, in fact, it opened yesterday, is Sarah Faulkner's new exhibition, Birds in Habitat, and uh, we're going to be talking to her about that next week. John Anderson exhibition is at Australia Galleries that will hang until the middle of July. Yeah, we spoke to him about that last week. And I know you tried to see it, Mark, with us and couldn't, but we went and actually saw it. And was it good? While you you were lounging around in Port Douglas. and uh, The dangers of Port Douglas. It was terrific. Good. Yes. Uh, Now, The Meeting Place is an exhibition being presented at the Hot Springs in Rye. It was curated by Susan McCulloch, and that's on until the 17th, which I think is... uh, uh, you've got a few days left to go and have a look at and that. And unfortunately, you can't lay around in bubbling hot water and look at a painting at the same time. No, sadly, sadly. Uh, Linden Lin- New Art has yes. a new exhibition, Dwanga Kachara. Oh, and I'm not going to have a go Chukapa at that. Kuchu. Yeah, presenting the mother-daughter relationship of Ananga women. Uh, you look, know, P- so Puna Yanima and that. Linda Puna. Why am well, I even reading that? Hmm. Only because you, neither of you two ever bothered to read the news, so you've never came, even tried to have it do it. So, yes, I'm going to read that again. Linda New Art has a new exhibition, Dwanga Kuchara, Chukabakuchu, presenting the mother-daughter relationship of Anangu women, Puna Yanima and Linda Puna. Uh, they're going to be, we are going to be talking to the curator of that exhibition, David Hagger, in a couple of weeks, and, um, that's, uh, on at the end of July. Now, just a uh, uh, sideline, on ABC Radio between uh, 4 o'clock in the afternoon until 8, there is a, Vanessa Hughes is playing uh, uh, Indigenous and Torres Strait Island women's music on the radio, mm. and some of it is magnificent. Yes, I bet ab- it is. Yeah, absolutely. So it's worth listening to. Uh, open House, uh, that's on for the month of July. Yeah, I'm going to try and do some of that. Yeah, it's got 220 buildings around Melbourne on the 28th and 29th open, but you need to go to their website to have a look at and choose which ones you're going to go and have a look at. Two of them are down here in the Mornington Peninsula at the Monash site. Uh, Parallel Visions, that sounds pretty interesting. It's a survey <laughs> of the work of two artists, Brett Whiteley and George Balderson, revealing the unusual synergies for, found between their work. Born in the same year, 1939, George Balderson and Brett Whiteley experienced meteoric success in their respective cities of Melbourne and Sydney and tragically died unexpectedly young. Yeah. And you George, were in touch with Brett Whiteley. I was in, in touch, touch with uh, yeah. George Balderson. So I, I think that's going to be a great theme well, see, for us to go well, and see that Brett exhibition. Whiteley. At least you could be polite enough to hear of the I one know, that I was in touch with. He's just obstreperous. Anyway, <laughs> listen, um, the Poets' Corner on July the 29th features Poet Wani. Uh, if you're, I suspect it may be sold out, but if you're interested in poetry, it's on at McRae on the 29th, which is a Sunday. Go to their Facebook page and have a look and see. If you have just tuned in, <coughs> you've missed Arts About. Yes, but you can catch up with us on the on Wednesdays at twelve if you want to have a look at um, uh, at this uh, uh, on RPP. But you can also listen to our podcasts, which are on at uh, on the station website. But they're also on at an address that I have on our Facebook page. And if you're interested in some of the things that we've been talking about, what's that address? I, 
What, our Facebook page? No, the address for the podcast on the Facebook. Is it a link? It's a link to yeah. that, yes. It's quite, it's, you know, it's one of those whooshka yeah. forward slash something yeah. or other dot, dot, dots. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I'd rather, rather than say it, I think you should go to our Facebook page and have a look. Uh, and you can select whichever program you like to have a listen to. Mm. Uh, so remember, everybody, we may not know everything about art. But as Oscar Wilde said, your family reminds you of the worst parts of yourself. Lovely. See you later, everybody. Hopefully, see you next week.